Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Dr. Bouchard, how are you doing? Just peachy keen. It's a lovely Keeping it real? <laughs> yeah, keeping it real, exactly. Always. Always. Where are you right now? Still in Victoria, in, in my uh, basement. There you go. There you go. Great things happen in basements in Victoria. (laughs) Something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I head off to um, the AIM course in Montreal next week. Looking forward to that. The the, airway course? Yeah, the airway course. Yeah. Perfect. It's actually a phenomenal course and stuff. Fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, course. And uh, you'll learn a lot. Yeah, I thought so. Just because I don't think, even though you do an anesthesia rotation, I mean, you're really doing very controlled circumstances intimations with people who know what they're talking about and exactly and that's the thing it's interesting too because like when i talk about intubation you you know it's it's kind of interesting because when we look at intubation we kind of we don't intubate people who are well like we're already intubating people with badness so you know the first and now there's actually a growing body of literature saying that it's probably good to recess rapid sequence is probably resuscitate first then intubate right if you can exactly you're going to be giving medications that are going to be totally crapping out people's blood pressure we'll try to give them a blood pressure in a relatively normal sat before you start the intubation right so try to as much as you can intubate a well person so take a sick person make them weller and then intubate them versus intubating somebody um um, that is way sicker and stuff i think they just they just came out with a study and it's interesting i think they found you know, um, systolic blood pressure predicted like chance of badness with intubation that they found out something some, like 3% or 4% of people in the study arrested. Exactly. Especially with propofol, you know, eh? Exactly. Especially with propofol. But like, what do we expect? You know, it's like, hi, my patient has a systolic of 40 and SATs <laughs> yeah. of 80. Let's give them propofol. Exactly. What? And- something bad happened? How did, and then we look at ourselves and we go, how did this happen? Right? Yeah. Well, that's why I really like the push for for airway plans, essentially, whereas you're like, you're actually considering rationally the agent you're using, you have a backup. Um, You're like you said, you're trying to resuscitate them as much as you can before you exactly before you do that. I I don't even like to use the term like intubation. I just say I like to, you know, I like to resuscitate people, make sure their blood pressure is good, make sure their oxygenation is reasonable, try to get them as well as possible. And then I actually do more principles of procedural sedation that result in them intubated. And I think that's where we need to get our mind sort of around things, right? Like, it's like the bad stuff happens when we push medications, right? Yeah. We've all seen that, right? And it's it just whatever. And yes, we can always say that ketamine might do a little bit less of this and propofol might do a little bit more of this, that type of thing. But it doesn't really matter. Like, you have somebody whose physiology is not normal, right? It's yeah, not somebody sure. coming inside for an elective gallbladder. They don't have normal physiology. When you don't have normal physiology... You need to you need to adjust your um you you need to adjust your the way we look at intubation right so it's not sort of this like you know oh my god get my laryngoscope and my tube I'm going in you know it's like okay let's just chill we probably have more time than what we think um let's try to get this person's oxygenation a bit better might try a little non invasive might throw in a little bit of high flow uh, you know what I mean let's try to get them on a vasopressor you know blood pressure and when you're dealing with sick people sometimes like money in the bank the more you have the more the more that propofol can take without you dying right yeah well do the basics um, first and set yourself up for success there you go. There you go and stuff. And kind of view it like a procedural sedation that results in intubation as opposed to like, let's stop you from breathing every time, right? 
And I and I I always like to say when we talk about difficult airways, all my airways that I deal with are difficult. Why? Because I don't intubate well people. Yeah. I intubate people who are really sick. So yeah. airway is not just a, is not just an anatomical thing. It's also a physiologic thing. So you can have a difficult airway. The airway you could you could stand across the room and see the person's glottis blowing in the breeze that you could probably you know a child could throw a tube in there. But they could have physiology that's such where even the switch to positive pressure is going to cause their pressure to 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 just totally destroy be destroyed. So airway is not only about anatomy. It's also about physiology, right? And that's the type of thing you can have somebody with. And the thing is. I, I, I'm, you know, when I intubate somebody, I'm intubating somebody, you know, their anatomy is one thing, but everybody I intubate is going to have bad physiology because they're sick with sepsis, like bad COD or something else is going on. Well, that's so. what makes them a difficult patient. Cause to be honest, usually I think the anatomy is usually okay. We're not seeing a lot of yeah. major head and neck trauma kind of thing. But like you said, they're usually physiologically crap at that point. Like That's the, reason, the, thing. the reason you're intubating them is because they're obtunded because they're crap. There you go, right? Stuff. They're not like they're not showing up. Hi, I'm here for my gallbladder. I fasted. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. You're right. I, you know, I, I made sure my veins are all popped out for you. It's gonna be you're gonna have no problems here, right? You know, open your mouth. Wow, you have an amazing mallet patty score. That's great, <laughs> right? Yeah. We intubate people like it's like, oh my god, you have to come right now. This person's dying. Do something, right? that's the type of situation that you find yourself um um that's the situation that you find yourself in so it even if the anatomy is great it's the physiology one of the things i don't we uh, we don't appreciate is the fact that as human beings we breathe based on negative pressure our diaphragm contracts and we get a negative interthoracic pressure yeah. you can get badness and even if you use a perfect medication the switch from negative interthoracic pressure to positive pressure just from me begging you has yeah. huge hemodynamic consequences right oh absolutely. you're now totally reversing how your RV response to volume, right? You're totally reversing the normal respiratory variation in, in left ventricular preload, right? Yeah. So those things are going to affect people, irrespective of what you do. I think that we, and if you speak to any intensivist, you know, they're going to say you only intubate people in cardiogenic shock if you absolutely have to. With oh, asthma, if you absolutely have to. With PEs, if you absolutely have to. Because those conditions are so sensitive to that change from negative to positive pressure. Yeah, they're so they're preload sensitive, which is exactly the same. It's, it's the right-sided infarct kind of thing too and the, there the, you go the ivc svc sits right behind your lung your our your right ventricle sits right at the lung there and that's the reservoir for blood so that's why you're preload dependent and then you make that worse by pushing on it rather than you know pulling with the negative there pressure, you go as i that that's perfect you are brilliant as i say smarts are the new sexy <laughs> nice thanks mike you don't understand? So that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So again, we have to think in mind that we were born with tubes in the back of our throat. And there's a huge physiologic shift that goes beyond the fact that we're sedating people or doing stuff to people. So that's why I almost feel like to view like, if I can get the tube in with as minimal physiologic perturbation as possible because it's already going to be a huge thing right yeah. then that's going to be a better a better thing you know I'm, I'm such a fan of the awake intubation when you can do it right absolutely the, yeah so today chest pain oh my you know let me chest pain <laughs> can i start off with a question now let me ask you a question there's two types of chest pain yeah chest pain that's clear and then vague chest pain yeah exactly how eh? much of your chest pain that you see is vague Oh my goodness, man. My theory is is that most people present with vague chest pain. 
right? Yeah. Oh, Where absolutely. you're never really quite sure. And you know what? If you are quite sure on history, you know what kind of we call that? We call that your lucky day. Does that make sense? Because it's not, doesn't happen very often. Am I lying? Am I lying in your clinical experience where you can be like, oh man, this is so pluritic and it hurts when I touch here and you were at the gym and you were doing some stuff this is so simple right exactly. no it's never like that it's yeah. or I shouldn't say it's never when it is like that you say yes this is gonna be an easy one most of the time it's like it hurts when I walk downstairs but then it really hurts when I walk up the stairs but only sometimes but only when I walk up the stairs at my neighbor's house <laughs> but I have more stairs at my house but it doesn't hurt me and then it hurts on the right side, a little bit of this, it travels up into my earlobe, and then it goes over to my left nostril, right? Yeah, that's that's where you get the interesting ones. But only when I walk down the stairs, never when yeah, I walk exactly. up, right? Yeah, well, and I mean, it's the fun It's the fun patience of, like, say, you know, 30-year-olds, so you're not thinking that at all, but the 30-year-old with crazy family risk factors, maybe. Or, or the 50-year-old guy who's had a previous MI, but this is entirely pleuritic or, you know, it's not even pointing anything towards MI. Those are the kind of interesting patients because those, are, those aren't necessarily even vague histories. They're just the, the clinical exam and the investigations don't match up with the history at all. And there you go. It's merging those together, which is fun. I enjoy that part Exactly. It. It's fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Yay. So what are we talking about with chest pain? A very, very common diagnosis. Extremely common diagnosis. Yeah. And you know the CFPC throws pulmonary embolism in here too, of course. That's and the so does life really. Yeah. Throws pulmonary embolism. Everybody thinks chest pain and everybody thinks MI and, you know, there maybe you maybe AAA or, you know, air dissection. Go. But yeah, PE is the big one in there. And lots have gone on in uh, the PE world over the last while with, you know, the I think the big thing that came out of it was... Tons of people have PEs um, and are stable and live long and healthy lives after having them. Yes, um, exactly. There's this, there's this whole kind of small PE or subsegmental PE category of patients Ex that that probably don't need investigation and certainly don't need treatment afterwards, and that we're killing more people than we're helping potentially with that because we're throwing people into renal failure with the uh, IV contrast. There you go. There you go. Very good point. There's also that population of people that just come inside with badness and you think, oh my God, this person could have a PE, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. There you go. And you know what? I, I think you make a very, very good point is that as human beings in medicine, um, it's interesting how whenever somebody comes into the emergency department and says they have chest pain, our natural inclination is, oh my God, you're having a heart attack. Isn't that like our natural human inclination to think heart attack? Well, I think so, it's the patient's natural inclination. There too. you go. The patient comes to you, oh my God, you know, because they watch ER and the guy clutches his chest and collapses. You think the heart is where my hand is. So therefore, that's the only thing in my chest, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, when I was a resident, not even when I was a resident, now, I always have to find my way to look at these, the likelihood of these alternate diagnoses first. So what other things can happen in the chest that can produce a lot of badness, right? Because my mind will automatically go towards MI and ACS and those things. It's the PEs. It's the dissections. It's the esophageal ruptures, the pneumothoraxes. That's the stuff that you can get caught on. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, there's tons of things that go on there. The three kind of cognitive forcing um, points that I always bring up for myself are MI, dissection, and PE. And I always exactly. think of those three. I mean, there, obviously there's other things going on. I think those are the three more common, super serious things that you at least got to consider 
doesn't matter based on their history or physical or whatever you got to do it and then i hope at least then you don't miss it there you go there you go so uh, you know i I have a similar approach like i look at my mind will automatically go towards am i i i have to go and really force myself and my algorithm kind of i look at the probability of these other diagnoses first right? right so at least i go through that cognitive exercise because the problem is we can fixate on the diagnosis that we want right and we can turn Absolutely. anything into a into a mi does that make sense even though it's looking more like diagnosis a, a totally different diagnosis so to sort of prevent that fixation so when we tend to fixate or we um, we have a thought of what something should be and despite evidence to the contrary we're trying to like convince ourselves that that is true i basically start off by saying okay what are my big things in my chest that can kill you that's not an mi so what are some of those things what are some you mentioned some of them yeah well i mean pulmonary embolism and aortic dissection are the two big ones i think of uh, eso- esophageal rupture is the one they always quote as being the one that muddles the the nitro game eh? of you know settles with go. nitro spray yeah exactly um herpes zoster infection um because yeah. that's going to be obvious it's going to be on the exactly. skin wall or it's a classical history uh hiatal hernia um yeah. ref- reflux esophageal spasm those kind of present well spasm can present acutely like that but usually they have a history of the same thing and they don't look particularly unwell Exactly. Um, and then peptic ulcer disease, if they've ruptured a ulcer, well, I mean, that's fairly dramatic as well. So Exactly. And it goes through that point that basically you have to start off by going through the other stuff that's not cardiac per se related that can still result in a whole lot of badness, right? What do you like to use for dissection and stuff? Like, how do you know if someone doesn't have a dissection? Or what can you convince yourself of or... Yeah, well, I mean, the classical, and the reason it's on the chest pain protocols is the chest x-ray, right? I mean, that's exactly. what, you're, you're supposed to look for that unfolding. Right. I I don't know if we have a better test in the rural areas that we're at um, per- that can get us there. I mean, I know if, you, if you're comfortable with ultrasound, apparently there's, you know, things you can look for. And, and definitely new murmurs in the heart would point you towards that. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, so things like certain x-ray findings that they'll talk about and each one of these things on their own are kind of crappy right yeah, like because there's a lot of people out there walking around eating a sandwich feeling great with a bit of a wide medius right? right so you have to look at things in terms of your clinical pre-test probability right, right. Um, uh, um what is your hunch that you're dealing with this particular um, um diagnosis they talk about pulse deficits so having varying pulse deficits in various um uh, um, uh, um parts um uh, um certain x-ray findings so things like a widened, um, uh, um, things like a widened, uh, 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 mediastinum can be somewhat, uh, it can, can be somewhat indicative. But again, you look at each one of those things in, like, by themselves, right? You have to look at them in entire clinical context, right? Yeah, when you're looking none at, of them uh, are uh, entirely uh, perfectly sensitive or there specific. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So usually, and, and the other thing that they looked at was, you know, a particularly sudden onset to the chest pain. Like, I was fine and boom, right? whatever that pain is like i was fine and boom you know if they have some pulse deficits right and their x-ray you know then you can be you know that those individual characteristics together can actually bring, increase your likelihood of having an aortic dissection right yeah right. and then on the the classic history finding is the connective tissue disorders as well right there you go there yeah. you go. what's way more likely like people always talk about <laughs> marfans and yeah. it's like what is hypertension like regular hypertension is probably the biggest common risk factor that people have for an aortic dissection, right? So keep it, we don't have very good, like, we don't have very good clinical prediction rules. We know that if your x-ray looks okay, you don't have any pulse deficits, you don't have any new murmurs, um, um, the pain did not start suddenly, you know what I mean? Then yep. probably it's unlikely, but again, it's a pretest probability thing, right? Well, you I, know, I think first, it scares people too, because yeah. I mean, you can do a perfect workup and I've had that happen at facilities I've been at 
where you know the guy gets up he feels a little bit better with some nitro morphine oxygen so on and so forth gets up walks out of the ed and collapses dead on the sidewalk there and, you go you know and you missed it and i mean you feel horrible about it but it's i don't think at this point we have that really good test it's there like you go said, it's the combination of them thinking of it on history physical um you know chest x-ray ultrasound i hope makes a big difference i would like exactly. to get trained up on that um i think it, real physicians especially ultrasound is kind of the saving grace but we're not exactly there yet. exactly and ultrasound can help you too nice little lung ultrasound for things like pneumothoraxes um ultrasound can be great for things like pneumonia you know yeah. well so it's actually being use... shown to be more sensitive and specific than x-ray for pneumonia which blows my mind we're exactly, totally not there exactly. to the point of doing that but exactly you know. It's a pretty neat modality. Like, yeah. like ultrasound has changed. I ultrasound everybody I can. Ultrasound's fantastic. It like gives you this ratification. Like you can use it, and it's not like you know, you know, when you're auscultating someone's chest, they're looking at him. Hmm, hmm, is that a murmur? Now it's like your valve is totally messed up, right? And you can <laughs> yeah. tell that. And the patient, and I find patients love it as well too, right? Wow, that's my valve. That's look at my heart. It's way more cooler. It's like radio and television, right? Not oh, to say absolutely. that there isn't really cool audio broadcasts. You know what I mean? That are not happening at this very second, right? Yeah. But again, it, you get that different dimension and stuff. You see something at least in 2D. And as well, too, um, 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 it can provide you with that useful clinical information quickly, right? So definitely a good idea to get trained uh, up in it. So what are you talking about aortic dissection? What about PE? Yeah, what about PE, eh? I mean, there's such a wide spectrum of present. Like, if you present with an aortic dissection, you're sick. I mean, I, I don't think yeah. there's, quote unquote, a mild aortic dissection. There's, exactly. There's it's like mild multi-system organ failure, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, the difficulty with PE is there's definitely mild PE. Definitely. And, and there's definitely massive PE where they don't even come in because they unfortunately died before they could get there. Excellent. So what you want to do is you basically as the clinician want to figure what is the PE that's, that's badness that I can actually do something about. Exactly. There's some people that have badness that I can't do anything to modify that risk. But there are some people who have badness that I actually have an intervention that I can actually do to modify that risk. The thing is, if I view PE as P badness, I agree with you totally. There's no new body research that says that not all PEs, you have these sub-segmental and these really small ones, but probably a lot more people are going to get the anticoagulation than just leaving them alone, right? Absolutely. Those are the types of things. So if I look at PE, it's more like I want to figure out what are the characteristics of a PE that's going to kill you that I can do something about? Yeah, so I mean, the, the classic finding again there that you learn in medical school would be the ECG findings, that right heart strain. Right. Um, which I don't think, I don't have the numbers on me. I don't think is quite very sensitive at all. It isn't. It's actually pretty bad sensitive. It's one of these findings that someone, you know, discovered and probably, you know, it's associated with... It's not great. like I, I don't even know how to paraphrase it that much. You see it, it like it impresses the internist. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly, it impresses yeah. our inner internal medicines. And we S one Q three T B A. I'm important now, right? Like, but the problem is, I've seen lots of people, and you can have massive PEs, and you don't have any of those changes. Exactly. Yeah. Um. But then on you know on history, like what the reason they come in? They come in with you know that pleuritic chest pain, which is difficult because it overlaps with pneumonia and other mnemonic processes. Um, dyspnea, which overlaps, um, cough, which overlaps, um, orthopnea, I think is a pretty specific finding. Um, yeah, yeah, and, 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 the, and the calf and the thigh pain or the swelling is kind of, the, I think the dead giveaway. If you have unilateral calf swelling, um, and there's not an obvious cellulitis or something else going on there and they Perfect. come in dyspnea, well, you know, exactly. that's, that's the pathway you're going down. 
Exactly. So you have this history, you have some historical findings, you know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of historical findings that you're talking about are risk factors for a PE, right? Yes, Like exactly. you have clear risk factors. You got a dude with cancer, you know, you have somebody with significant immobilization, right? Like you, your mind is going to be thinking more. So we understand the power of the clinical history in terms of getting risk factors for processes that up your pretest probability for disease. Because let me tell you something, for a lot of physical exam maneuvers that we do, the sensitivity and specificity is garbage, right? Yes, absolutely. And, it's garbage. Um, ultrasound can be a great modality as well, too. You see a little bit of RV strength. Ooh, that could be a bit worse, right? Um, 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 that could definitely be suggestive of a pulmonary embolism. But I always think about it like we always have the prototypical cases that we hear about on history and physical exam. But keep in mind, a lot of what you're doing with a PE is really what's your risk factors for having a PE, right? right. Hi, I have cancer and I've been in bed for four weeks after hip fracture surgery and I hate what's that stuff called Alexa, riva no can't afford it right yeah, exactly. either one i can't, can't afford you know that's that's going to be the type of patient that's really going to be high risk right so the one thing i want to throw in there because you're basically going through the wells criteria Very um good. some of it anyways yeah. but the uh the biggest thing for me we we're talking about the mass of p yeah i mean that one's kind of classical um you're not going to miss it right. um kind of in that moderate to low risk or those ones who are don't have significant symptoms um you know there's the perk rule which we can talk about a little bit for ruling out but for me if i have young healthy ladies um who are on the birth control pill who come in and have some kind of chest pain symptoms but if they're tachycardic for oh no yeah reason, definitely that's i think that's the biggest thing out of the wells criteria right there there you go vital sign perturbation on otherwise unexplained should get our spider sense tingling we should be like wtf like why yeah. is this 20 year old going at 130 you know what i mean and stuff and i i don't have an explanation for that right so exactly. that vital sign perturbation is is you know that's a whole different category right because like you don't have a we don't have a very good explanation for that right so definitely you're perfectly right in that context and that goes with any patient coming into the merge where that you know the unexplained vital sign but the wells criteria specifically they you only get a point and a half, which you get for the same thing for immobilization for three days. Right. For for that tachycardia, for a heart rate just over a hundred. Right. And I think that should be a that's a much more specific sign. Exactly. Sign, Especially if you mind. don't have an alternate diagnosis to explain that. Like if that twenty one yeah. year old said, Hi, oh by the way, I just did a table's worth of cocaine, then you're not as <laughs> concerned about PE, right? But you understand what I mean? Like you're not as concerned. Maybe they might have a massive MI, you know what I mean, and stuff, and that's a that's a different story, but you're not as concerned about PE because you have a fairly good explanation for that tachycardia, right? It all depends. And well did this initial so well this concept of this pretest probability you're using some historical stuff some physical exam stuff and vital sign stuff to decide a pretest probability what and what is pretest probability otherwise in my layman's world which is the world i exist in it is the hunch you notice that you go to the patient and you're like you i think you might have a pe what is your pretest like just based on that sort of you know that sort of history and the physical exam findings what do you think is the likelihood that this person has a PE, right? So it really helps, it really helps, um, uh, um, um, characterize that. And that's why I said it, it's really, if you have like a vital sign that you can't explain, well, yeah, it can make these things more likely. Um, thankfully, most of, most, um, uh, um, most patients don't, right? That we, that we, um, that we encounter, right? Really what you're doing is what is your pretest probability? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So the perk rule, just to run through it for the podcast here, um, it you can use it as an alternative to D dimer. Perfect. If you think if if you think they're low risk, but it only applies to low risk. It's it's a rule out. That's what you want to do. There you go. If if they're, if they're high sensitive, you should be testing them, and potentially you should be treating them even before you test them. If you if you're like this is completely classic and they're perfect. The criteria on there. They have to be young, so less than 50 years old. Heart rate uh, has to be less than 100. They have to have good SATs, so greater than 95%. They can't have any uh, bleeding cough, so hemoptysis. No estrogen use. That's the mm-hmm. difficult one because these right. young ladies come in with something and they have exogenous estrogen. Yeah. Can't use it. You can't use um, it. Because it is a risk factor. Um, obviously, no prior DVT or PE. Right. Um, no unilateral leg swelling and no surgery trauma requiring hospitalization in the last four weeks. So I think Perfect. that's a pretty reasonable... Uh, set of rules and honestly i think most clinicians kind of had that in their head to start with if if you had none of those signs yeah and they came in and they were complaining of pleuritic chest pain i'd be like mm, exactly probably not exactly and what that does it allows you to quantify your hunch right to basically say i can confidently now keep in mind the perk score and you correctly identified is only for low risk people right so you still have to do your assessment and say you know what i think i when you eyeball the patient do your history and your physical exam pe is not not on top of your list, right? Then the perk rule can be useful, right? Because it can basically, um, 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 the age cutoff on that, I believe, is 50 years old. It's only for people under 50 yeah. and stuff. Exactly. So, so that it can be useful because you don't need a D dime, right? If you're totally perk negative, then yeah. you look somewhere else for the cause or chest pain. It doesn't mean that they don't have something that is going to kill them, right? It means that yeah. what that is is probably not a PE. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. And that's a nice thing. I mean, it, as long as they don't have exogenous estrogen in, which does limit its applicability, yeah, um, it allows you to rule out PE in a lot of people just in your head, just yeah. thinking it through while you're thinking of other diagnoses. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's good. So I, we covered some of the, uh, some of the, uh, some of the diagnoses. So just to kind of yeah. like, you know, so first approach, you have somebody with chest pain. What's the most common type of chest pain people present with? The vagueness chest pain Absolutely. where you're not running and nothing is jumping out at you or you, your history section of the little piece of paper that, that they give you to write in the emergency report is basically like all history right it's contradicting each other right and then so this this vague chest pain right first thing that you do is you look at your um we all tend to fixate on cardiac diagnoses and the biggest one is the mi so you start off with stuff and try to convince yourself uh, uh, because there's other things in the chest that can kill you that you don't have that first right so we talked about exactly. some detection that's um, uh, um history physical exam right so the pain didn't start rapidly normal chest x-ray equal pulses unlikely a dissection right pe your perk score is useful for people who are otherwise low risk right if something's funny going on with the vital signs it's otherwise unexplained it's definitely um a a diagnosis to entertain right what about other stuff we have pneumonia we had said before that's a lot of that is history Uh, um um, pneumothorax again too can be certain historical there's some physical exam findings can be that and what's the best physical exam ultrasound absolutely especially in the chest it's oh. a hollow cavity. You can see everything. It's awesome. Like, I have a challenge I make to the residents every year, and I say, let's not use our stethoscope merge shift. Yeah, exactly. Let's just use your ultrasound. Try that. Like, just try to use your ultrasound the entire time, right? And and, they, and you walk around, you're not, like, you're not, like, burdened. You know, is that a neck? Is that, like, <laughs> a neck? Like, wow, yeah. what's a crackle? If you hear your crackles, eat Rice Krispies. Does that? I mean, then if yeah. you want to tell what's going on in somebody's lung, then use the friggin' ultrasound. Absolutely. 
There. Yeah, and uh, the the questions I have on history, there's a really good summary on the EMN5 blog. I don't know if you've ever seen that for Approach to Chessbane. Excellent blog. But the three specific questions they add on top of that on any history, but um, specifically for Chessbane, is, you know, is the pain pleuritic? Is it palpable? And is it positional? Exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent yeah. little approach there. I, I'm, learning, I'm learning so much. There, there you go, Mike. I'm learning tons from you, too. I don't even want to touch, you know, so we're, we're talking about the stable patient presenting. If they're unstable, then we go through Mike's excellent podcast uh, history. And, and actually, you're the one that put me onto the mnemonic, the ABCD OMIP, the there, OMIC, the oxygen monitors, IV, check pulses kind of thing. Oh, so oh book, perfect, perfect. Yeah. But you see, like, and those patients, it's like, that person has badness. Like, hi, I have chest pain, and my blood pressure is, matches my age, and I'm 40. Does that make sense? Like, that yeah, is exactly. not, like, that's a person, they're in shock, they are, they have a whole lot of badness and stuff, right? Those are not usually yep. diagnostic challenges, especially if you're a rural physician, because you're literally going to stabilize and get the hell out of your center to another center and stuff like that for them to do operations, those types of things, right? So that's not usually exactly. the diagnostic challenge for say because you know that person is coming in that person is getting a very very high level of care right it's yeah, it's absolutely. the people that you could potentially send home those are the people with chest pain that were like oh what do i do right absolutely so lots of alternate diagnosis that we talk so do the alternate diagnosis consider other things in the chest that can kill you first because your mind yeah. will automatically go to mi right yeah, absolutely. We watched enough ER, you know what I mean, an undergraduate to, to understand that people come into the eMERGE holding their chest and looking at the heart attack and using paddles and stuff, right? That's like, that's going to continue as a doctor, right? The thing is you have exactly. to fight that urge to blame all of that pain on just this has to be an MI. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So because we always end up going to MI, how about we talk about PE diagnosis management really quickly and then go back to MI and kind of wrap it up? Perfect. Yeah. Cool. So PE, if they're perk rule, that's awesome. They rule out, obviously we're saying somebody's maybe the 21 year old with exogenous estrogen. Would you ever not do a D-dimer in her? Would I ever not do a D-dimer in her? You know what? Yeah. I, I think pretty well with that sort of history. And again, I'm, 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 I'm looking at my Wells criteria now and stuff. You know what I yeah, mean? That a D-dimer exactly. would be useful in her because yeah. if she doesn't have anything else that's going to factitiously raise her D-dimer, does that make sense? You can, not D-dimer because D-dimers can be so, you know, hi, I have active lupus right now up on my stair. No, a D-dimer is not going to be useful for her, right? Exactly. Like that's the type of thing I would I would consider. In an otherwise a low-risk person, a D-dimer can be useful for ruling out a PE. Yeah. So I've heard from a lot of clinicians and I'm interested to get your opinion. A D-dimer, um, people find it uh, troublesome almost to do it because if you, if you do it and say you missed that part on their history or they they end up, you know, they tell you after you do the D-dimer that they have lupus and it comes back positive. Now people feel stuck and they feel like they have to do the CTPA or they have to send them, you know, south in our case to a, a tertiary center to get um, imaging and an investigation. Um, what, what's your opinion on that? If you have a positive D-dimer and everything else makes them fairly low risk. Yeah. So, so they don't have a sky high D-dimer. They have just above their age cutoff. So say in the 21 year old 
say it's like 550 or something like that okay and 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 nothing else points toward pe but you you know your resident your dumb resident accidentally ordered a d-dimer all oh, those dumb what? residents exactly or, or a med student god help them there you go oh. there you go and you know what honestly that is a very very good point that you mentioned and it really i'm a big fan of avoiding that situation right you know yeah. a lot of hospitals they they like to do these um these kind of pre-printed sort of pre-order so the nurses can initiate a lot of these things and they were and they uh, um um they have some evidence that you don't want to do that for d-dimer right because you end up Absolutely. in this diagnostic conundrum very very often like often right crack yeah. from a practice I, I, I i'm cautious to say yeah you know what if it's just 550 send them home with nothing i'm cautious to say that right because now you have you're stuck with this value that you have to explain right and exactly. why is why is that person um, uh, um um why is that why is that person if i don't have an alternate explanation that's the issue right so again i i advocate strongly for avoiding being in that situation right do not get yeah. d dimer itis ask yourself is it going to change my management if this comes back positive am i gonna go all the way right absolutely you know, i'm gonna exactly. order it just and let the don't let your approach be i'm gonna order it at 7 30 because my shift is done at eight does that make sense <laughs> it's now somebody else's problem that is not good. Now, I've heard as well, too, you know, if it's just a little bit high, you, you know what I mean? You might just do a scan, an ultrasound of their legs just to make sure that type of thing. You know what I mean? And stuff, because most symptomatic PEs and stuff um, 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 start from upper, uh, start superior to the popliteal, right? So maybe if Absolutely. they had, they didn't. Uh, um, and if they, you find something there, you're going to treat it like, like they had a PE, right? So I've heard that explanation, but that's not evidence-based. We don't have evidence for being in that situation. We have good evidence for using the D-dimer when it's supposed to be used in low-risk people. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a fair point. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the other part that comes with D-dimer is this new age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff. There you which go. I think is, which I think is lovely. It's lovely. And age times 10. Yeah, exactly. Well, because, I mean, the issue was is that we know that D-dimer increases with age just as a baseline. Right. And then so you had, you know, 50, 60, 70, God help you, 80-year-olds who have no risk factors for PE other than age. And, right. And they come in know. with a, a D-dimer of 503 that you yeah. ordered at 730 for your colleague to now deal with at 8. Does that make sense? Exactly. Exactly. And we got so many of those patients before, and I think it's – the it was the adjust PE study that was done in 2012, which is just excellent because it showed that we can still be quite sensitive, quite specific, exactly. Um, but adjust that D dimer cutoff. So even our lab doesn't adjust it for us. Yeah. Um, so every time it comes back, it's you know red flagged on the computer, and you have to. Yeah, age adjust. Yeah, yeah you have to do like the math. Okay, you're six yeah. months. I mean, they have six hundred. You understand? Yeah. There. Um, but I think that's made a huge difference in. Um, that came out, I guess, halfway through my residency, actually. So there you go. Um, and it's a, and you know, I, I, I think uh, that was a very, very good study. The adjust, uh, the, the adjust PE study. Uh, you know, I use it. Um, you know, some people have questioned whether or not it's really ready for prime time yet. You know what I mean? And stuff like because it's one study, and you, you know, we don't like to do things just based on one study. Uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. That that's so. I think we have to interpret it. You know, I think it's a very good. And I think is I'm not quite sure that standard of care yet. Does that make sense? Like just based on that one study you know but definitely very 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 promising and stuff and i use that myself too some people have criticized whether or not you know is it quite ready for prime time yet it's just one yeah. study we have to do more studies to make 
or, you know, in older people, you know, where they have more risk factors in that study and stuff, they didn't have as many old 80 year olds as they did 60 year olds. So is the adjustment, you know, is that going to skew the numbers that you get a little bit? So again, yeah. you know, you know, it, it, it's a, it's based on a single study. I think it's a very good study and I would apply it, but I would just say that we still have to be careful with it, right? It's the yeah. best available evidence, right? So absolutely. And yeah. I think that's a fair, just general point in clinical medicine is you're going to have you don't want to be the first one to a new treatment or to diagnosis or exactly. procedure or anything. And you don't want to be the last one either. And I think most people have different comfort measures in there or exactly. comfort levels in there. And exactly. I think that's totally fine. Exactly. Can, exactly. You can you come know? at it however have you like. You look at the evidence yourself and you decide. But yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly and stuff. You know. So if I have a seven-year-old and their D-dimer comes yeah. back and our lax flies them high at like 500 and it's 560, you know, and I wasn't – and it was the person who ordered it at 7.30 for me to deal with at 8 o'clock. Does that make sense? I'm going to use that study and say, you know what? This person age adjusted. I wasn't thinking that. I now have further evidence to probably confirm that this person really didn't have a, like, a really didn't have anything going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad they did this study just because we knew it increased with age. And, and we obviously needed an age cutoff of some kind. Exactly. And the fact that it works out to age times 10 is convenient. One exactly. Exactly to have to have a calculator for there you go yeah so then if d-dimer positive what's the next step yeah exactly it's sending them south which uh is always fun sending them away (laughs) i wish we had a a nuclear medicine unit or a or a ct scanner where we're at so you could do the vq scan or the ctpa but um well in hollywood sioux lookout we got three years ago a hollywood ct scanner and it made our life so much easier Listen, Sioux Lookout is the metropolis, right? You're looking at me from northern Saskatchewan. Oh my god, like Sioux Lookout is big. Like, how many people? You have five thousand people, and you have a CT scanner. Oh my have, goodness! Listen, we're the hub of the. Like we have referrals from the whole region, right? Oh, nice. Fair the, enough. There you go. We're very like we we are top notch where we are. We are. I love Sioux Lookout. So this is how you write the requisition, right? I hope yeah. I don't fry their kidneys, right? Yeah, no, I, I'm. There's people way smarter than me that talked about that. Um, Scott Weingard on the MCrit podcast had a whole kind of series on it over the last couple of years on, on these kind of not low risk peas, but um, sub symptoms or the yeah sub massive yeah. peas, <laughs> um, and that were probably end up doing more harm than good. But that's yeah. beyond me. I that. I I would still investigate. I'm definitely going to consult for it. And, yeah, and let and them make that decision. I always say peas can be basically in three categories: these subsegmental ones that probably you could question whether or not finding out is really going to affect management because we even question whether or not we, you know, we need to treat them right. Then we have sure. these sub massive peas, and then we have massive peas. So if you have a PE and you're hypotensive and you are in cardiogenic shock, but, and you're like, listen, I should probably thrombolyze this person because there's really nothing else I can do, right? Yeah, so that's exactly. not usually a clinic. It's where is it is in these patients with these submassive PEs and different have, have characterized submassive PEs differently. Some people say that they have a bit of RV strain. Some people's studies will use their BNP is up. Some studies will use their troponin is up. But they have some marker of some degree of cardiac dysfunction with it. Because what the kind of holy grail is, is that we know a population of those people with submassive PEs can actually get quite sick. And, they, and there's probably a population that benefit from thrombolytics. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where there's a lot of research 
now in looking at this population of PE patients with the submassive PEs. Remember, the little really sub-segmental ones that we even question to what do I want to know about them because you could even question the, the benefit of even quote-unquote treating them, right? That's not yeah, where the absolutely. issue is. The people with hypotension and shock because they have a PE, that's what the issue is as well, right? You're going to thrombolize that person because you have nothing else that you can do, right? Um, um, unless you're an expert at taking clots out of people's pulmonary arteries, right? But we don't have that unit. They close that unit down in Sioux Lookout, right? Oh, so, yeah. And in most places, right? Other than centers <laughs> like Toronto and the Mayo Clinic, right? Where yeah. you do know is that these big proportion of people with these submassive PEs, which basically means means you have some marker of cardiac dysfunction, plus you have a PE, right? You have a, a RV strain, your troponin is high, some studies look at BNP. So we know a, a certain population of those people are going to actually benefit from thrombolytics, right? But we know a certain, we know thrombolytics can be cerebral bleeds in a can if you're not careful, right? So it's a pig figure out what that population is. So that's what we're getting, a lot of research is going on right, uh, right now looking at that. So, you know, um, there is, there is a segment of people with these submassive PEs. These people are not in shock. Their pressure is fine, but they have other markers of RV dysfunction that they can decompensate. You're going to want to treat them with thrombolytics. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and I mean, the other issue with the, the CTPA as well, which they're trying to string out in that middle ground, because like you said, we haven't figured out, they haven't differentiated the lower risk of submassive versus the higher risk submassive or those, those patients who are going to go on to do to have badness as you say yeah versus who's will go go on to do fine i i hope they come up with good evidence or good algorithms for that um because we are giving a lot of iv contrast to these people and iv contrast is not benign um it does yeah. push a significant percentage of patients over into acute renal failure yeah. usually recover it's not usually not an issue but um you know for these these PE patients who will probably not have another one and have no, you know, really sequelae from it. Yeah. If we, if we can save them the radiation and the IV contrast, that'd be great. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. So the PE and one thing from the critical care, cause you know, I love critical care, right? Absolutely. If you have somebody with a badness PE intubation can really screw people up. Yeah. That's if a great you point. Have somebody with a hemodynamically unstable PE, and you just intubate them for S's and G's, right? You could really screw them up because think about it. They have RV strain and now all of a sudden you're giving them medications. They're going to drop their preload. In addition, you're switching them from negative to positive pressure ventilation, which we, which we talked about have huge hemodynamic consequences. If you speak to an intensivist, when you, when they hear about, well, okay, you have a massive PE patient, like, why are we intubating them then? Like, I want to get, you know, you only intubate them if you absolutely have to, right? You avoid exactly. it. If, if you can get away with non-invasive, you can get away with something else. You're going to get away with something else because they really do not like that switch from negative to positive pressure very well. And it makes sense, right? They have an RV that's not working and all of a sudden you are you are giving them medications that run the risk of dropping their preload in addition to you're switching them from negative to positive pressure right so yeah. one of the and things I've that, seen that on even on even less invasive things so they're hypoxemic and you're you're desperately trying to get their oxygen up the next you know option in between there is CPAP well that's bad too exactly that's also it's the positive pressure that's the huge that's the huge that thing, thing right so it doesn't yeah. mean that we, we we don't use it but we really want to be we do not want to be doing it just for S's and G's right and it's for and that stands for you know rhymes with spit and <laughs> you know what I mean and sniggles, I, I, I think right? I think most people got you there yeah. there you go right so again because you can have badness hemodynamic consequences right so um, um so yeah. you just want to just want to Keep that in mind. So for the issue of PE, basically, 
you know, you have peas that are teeny weenies, subsegmental, you know, evidence summary. There's actually some new evidence that probably whether or not you want to even find out about those because you can question whether or not treatment is going to affect outcome. We have this big category in the middle called the subclass of PE, where people have some type of marker of cardiac dysfunction. Some studies have used BMP, some studies use troponin. And then we have the people with the massive PE, right? The person it basically who comes inside hypotensive with their PE. If you're hypotensive with a PE, you need to be properly resuscitated. They're going to need lots of preload, right? Because that RV is really going to, the last thing it's going to want to have is not have any, um, um, the last thing it's going to want is not having any um, preload. Those people with massive PE, in a rural center, you're basically thrombolizing and shipping them, right? The submassive kind of take-home message, there's a population of people that probably thrombolytics are going to benefit. Do we quite have nailed down what that population is? Not quite. We know thrombolytics have risk of bleeding. We know that bleeding risk skyrockets as, skyrockets the higher you get above about 60 to 65, right? So if I was throm I thrombolize people with these submassive PEs, they're definitely young people, right? What, that are yeah, otherwise absolutely. healthy, right? Low risk exactly. people, again, if they have a PE, we're even questioning these little subsegmental PEs, you know, is there a definitive benefit to actually treating them? We don't know. Most of them end up getting treated, right? In real, because they, oh man, you have a subsegmental PE. We see P and we think, oh my God, you need to be on something, right? But now they started to question that in terms of benefit. Yeah. Well, we've always had a bias in the medical field for intervention versus conservative measures. There and, you go. You know, that's not going to change here. Exactly. <laughs> that's not going to change yeah. here. And then that kind of flips over into the MI a bit too, because as as you mentioned, the thrombolytics, I mean, thrombolytics and PE and thrombolytics and MI, the 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 thing they have in common there is with age, you get the side effects a lot more and you exactly. get the, the, the devastating hemorrhage. So there's a age threshold um, in MI that maybe we don't want to be giving um, thrombolytics out in the field and, and preferencing PCI if we can get them to it. Um, and it's the same thing with PE. At, you know, at a certain age, everything's too frail. And even if they have a clot in there, if you try and bust that clot, you're going to bust a blood vessel in something more important, in a more important organ. Exactly, exactly, and stuff. So again, you know, I always like to ask this to people just start. I, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Fire have away. you lost your thrombolytic virginity yet? Like, have you pushed thrombolytics as a staff doctor yet? No, I have not. Oh I've my God, as, Rick. I, <laughs> I, I, I've, done, I've done it as a resident. But it's I a great, done it. oh, you no. know, your first time. Let me tell you. You are scared spitless the first time you give this stuff, right? Yeah. I will enough. tell you, I remember my first time, right? And again, like it's it's like you get you read a little box, right? You're double checking and you're quadruple checking, right? And you're like, wow, this stuff, you know, and then you read the warning statement on the bottom of the on the bottom of the Reddit plays or the Alta plays, you know, caution, caution. Uh, and then one of the things that listeners is like, make sure that you're an expert. I remember thinking, I'm not an expert in giving this stuff. I've never, only to be given by experts, right? It says that on the box and you feel like, oh my God, I'm an expert, right? <laughs> I love things in medicine. They do that, right? You know, uh, you know, contraindicated if lack of clinical experience. You know what I mean? It's like, hello, right here, third month yeah. into it. I, yeah. right? So, and again, I think we have to respect and I never say give thrombolytics. I always say consider giving thrombolytics, right? Because yes, we have absolute contraindication for thrombolytics. Um, 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 th there's no question. But remember, we deal with like patients, and sometimes you have to look at risk benefit and kind of what's my benefit to my patient, right? 
high, you bled a couple times, you tend to fall and hit your head a lot and have subdurals, right? Like, you understand? So, you know, it's, it's, it's always a consideration, right? It's a consideration for a therapeutic modality, right? So, you know, and that gets out of my mind, this idea that, oh my God, we have to trauma, like, you understand? Because you get so excited and you feel all this pressure that you have to like, oh my God, we have to, time is muscle, time is muscle, you understand? And you, you really want to take that teeny, a bit of time to say, okay, I'm going to consider this. Let me see my contraindications. Let me look at the name contraindications. Let me look at the relative contraindications. Let me look at the patient. Does that make sense? Is this a patient that I benefit from thrombolytic? Does the patient aware of that risk? I've had patients that I've discussed with the risk of thrombolytics and they say, doctor, that 4% risk of, uh, uh, in my population of, 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 of intracerebral hemorrhage and depending on your population, that it can be a hell of a lot higher than that. They said, I don't want it. So it always, you always have to consider that as well too, to consider that, um, that thrombolytic. So we're talking about chest pain. When you look at chest pain, okay, so we've dealt with all the, we've dealt with all the stuff that's not in, that's not heart attack related that can kill you. And let's say, okay, you have a patient, 90% of the time, you're not, what is that? You're not thinking about, you know, no, 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 it's not a it's not a dissection. Now it's not an esophageal rupture. This person doesn't have a pneumothorax. They don't have a pneumonia. You know what I mean? They don't have any of that stuff, right? Okay, you're still left with a patient with pain, right? And you have to decide yourself, okay, if cardiac, right? It's why do people come to the hospital? They come to the hospital to, with chest pain because they think they're going to die. So you have to ask yourself, when we look at chest pain, it's what's the chance, and the new term now is MACE, Major Adverse Cardiac Event. What's the chance of MACE by the, by, according to the history, physical exam findings, EKG findings, and serum biomarkers, right? What's the chance of that badness happening? Because let me tell you something. There's a difference between blockages and blockages in your heart that kill you. You want to find blockages in the heart that kill the person, that do the, that, that can kill the person, that by doing an intervention that is going to, you're going to be able to intervene. Absolutely. And affect their mortality. Yeah. Because honestly, most 50, 60 year old guys have blockages in their heart. There you go. That's that atherosclerosis. It's one of those risk factors. And yeah, you get up to a point, you get a little bit more blockage, a little bit more blockage. And all of a sudden, you know, you throw a little clot in there and you have your massive heart attack. And it's finding those patients beforehand would be great, but finding them when they're having it too. That's, that's the, the mace um, difficulty. There you go. There you go. That's the, um, that's the thing. So are there any sort of, you know what I, 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 because this used to rack physicians for a long time because it's like, okay, does everybody need to come inside and get stress tests and get admitted? You understand? And those types of things. Or is there a population of people that I can rapidly stratify to the low risk state, which is what you want. You want like a CT head rules for chest pain, right? You know, the CT head rules got to big up my people in Ottawa, right? Like, Hey, why are the CT head rules useful? Because they rapidly risk stratify into a low risk state. If you don't got this, you don't got this, you don't got this, you don't got this. Don't worry about it. Does that make sense? You don't need to do the CT. That's what it tells you. You want something like that. Hey, if you don't have this on history, you don't have this on physical exam, you don't have this with your EKG, and you don't have this with your troponin, don't worry about it. The chance of a badness event in the next whatever frame of time is low. It doesn't mean that you don't have blockages. It just means that you won't die of your blockages now, which is, I think, the kind of question that we want to be able to answer. Exactly. Yep. And they cover this. So we have the CMAC conference, which is the emergency conference in Saskatchewan. 
every year. Um, and Dr. Lalani, I'll stick his name on the podcast here, um, did an excellent talk on essentially that risk stratification of chest pain patients. Excellent. And there's there's tons of new evidence. There's the heart score. There's the Kimmy score. score. Yeah. There's there's algorithms around each of them. And I I don't know, like you mentioned before, I don't know if they're ready for prime time because they're coming up with one hour rule outs. They're coming up with two hour rule outs. There you go. They're coming up with scores where you don't even do a first troponin. So it's kind of like the perk rule for MI. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if they're there with any of them, but it sounds like some of them are getting pretty close. So they are. They are. They're getting pretty They're getting pretty close because, you know what? When they've done large registries, like where they've actually followed patients for a really, really long time, presented in the emergency department with chest pain, and actually follow right. them and say, okay, well, how many of those people died? When they looked and they said, you know, if their history was low risk, their EKG was low risk, and their troponin was kind of low risk and stuff, then there was actually a surprisingly small number of people that actually died within 30 days, 60 days. Does that make sense? So exactly. when you did these, so that's why you have this, they're trying to do a lot more scores. You know what I mean? Like the heart score is a great score, right? You know what I yep, mean? Absolutely. And again, you have to be cautious because remember you have to use scores that are not only derived, but they've also been validated, right? So anybody can come up with a clinical prediction rule is whether or not it's been validated or not, right? They've actually applied the rule and actually determined that, right? So right, you, exactly. yeah, you can use a, a score and what it does is it based all of them usually have this flavor of history. They have this flavor of EKG abnormalities that are new that are consistent with ischemia and they have this some type of flavor usually of some type of biomarker right some of them use high sensitivity uh, uh, um, troponin some of them use regular troponin right so just to highlight one I'm not I'm just talking about this like the heart score right it kind of looks at that yep. right it looks at okay you characterize your history according to you know do you think this person is giving you the impression that they're having that this that their chest pain is due to an ACS you look at their EKG and you comment, is their SD7 del- uh, uh, um, depression or not? It's stratified according to age. It gives some risk factors as well too, right? Um, uh, um, and it talks about a troponin as well, right? And again, if you have none of those risk characteristics if you're, uh, and, and you get a certain number of points, depending on how many of those things you have, I'm not going to bore everybody with those characteristics, right? You can go to MDCalc or any one of those websites to be able to use the exact score. And I'd actually recommend to do that so you don't try to memorize this stuff and make a mistake. Absolutely. Weighted, weighted differently. But if you have a low score and with this rule, it's between zero and three, then the chance of this major adverse cardiac event is really low, right? Yeah. And that's the whole idea. This idea about how can, I know some people have chest pain. I know some, a proportion of those people have chest pain that's due to an ACS. I know a lot of those people have chest pain. And, and, and they may have a, they, they have some historical findings that concern me for ACS, but they're low risk. Does that make sense? Exactly. The comparison, it's good that we're talking about chest pain as a whole topic here because we've had an excellent rule out test and a rule out rule for PE. And yeah, that's exactly. the perk rule and the D dimer. Right. Um, they're excellent for rule out. So if they're, if they're positive, yeah, you have to deal with stuff. But if they're negative, send them home. That's great. Yeah, Never exactly. had that with MI with the exception of a six hour troponin. Right. Um, but then they're in the emergency department for six hours. That's not fun for you and that's not fun for them. Exactly. And that's where this heart score and Timmy score come in. That both of them, and again, we don't need to go through numbers here. They're both excellent. They've both been validated to date. The yeah. the one issue, the criticism with the Timmy score is that it was actually it was derived on patients with confirmed ACS. Exactly. So they didn't take all comers to the emergency department with chest pain. They they kind of went backwards. They looked at ACS, confirmed ACS patients and then went back and came up with a score with it. 
That said, it validated well even in just all-comer chest pain patients after that. Yeah. Um, and actually, the one study that I was going to mention here, just so people knew, was um, in 2006, there was 1,000 patients uh, with chest pain presenting to the eMERGE. So they took all comers. If you had a TIMI score of zero, um, and you can, again, look up the criteria on MDCalc, if you had a TIMI score of zero, there was zero events at 30 days. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and again, not, and not, a, not a bad rollout. Exactly. How do you go about stratifying people into the low risk state? That's what you want, right? Because you know that before a huge percentage of those people were going on for more invasive, t- invasive testing. And let me ask you a question. If you send somebody for some sort of provocatory stress test, right? And I don't care if it's an EKG stress test. I don't care if it's a, 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 a myoview or some type of nuclear medicine scan or you send them for stress echo. Remember, if you send somebody with a low tip pre-test probability for a test that isn't perfect, every positive result that you get, it's, it's a huge chance it could be a false positive, right? So you're going to get a lot of negative results. And there's a huge probability that a lot of your positive results are actually going to be false positives, right? So you're going to be sending a lot of low-risk people getting these positive tests. And then what do you do after you get a positive test on a percentine myo view or on a thing? Well, we need to do an angio. Does that make sense? Which involves a whole lot of uh, dye. And, and what do we find? We find blockages. When you do angios, you find blockages. And it's really hard for cardiologists not to stand blockage. It's like what they love to do. Look at, but the question is, there's differences between blockages and blockages that kill you, right? And that's the thing. It's not every time that you go inside and you stent something open in the, especially in the context of chronic, uh, um, 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 disease that you actually. Very exclusive club called aspirin plavix or aspirin ticargrelor or aspirin prosubral club. And you can join the bleeding club. And you join the club that says, if you don't take this medication for even a couple days within the first few months, you could die of a massive MI because you clot over your stent. So we take a negative troponin and convert it to a very positive troponin, right? Exactly. And there's a, so stenting for primary prevention has really poor evidence. And that's the kind of point point you hit on there was if you haven't had a heart attack before, you didn't present an ACS, um, but then you had all those investigations because you were low risk. If you get stented, you're not winning. You're the not winning. Is winning because they get to make the money off of it. But, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. But you're not, but you're not better off. Um, so I'm not really sure. Maybe there's evidence that I don't know of that they're doing it. Um, or maybe they're just being super cautious with it. But um, of the evidence I've seen, there's no point, there's no benefit to stenting in primary prevention. Exactly. Uh, and for low risk yes. people, for low risk yeah. people, the evidence that, because remember, it's what, when you do an intervention, you want that intervention to actually help the person. And you want to be able to tell the patient, how is it going to help you? You know what I mean? What is the outcome I'm looking at? If my outcome is angina well a nitro patch can help your angina and you avoid all of the aspirin flavix club and you forget to take your medications for a couple days and you die of a massive heart attack or you have a now you go from a maybe an mi to a definite mi right so that's the type of thing that you have to consider is what outcome i'm using to measure and very correctly this idea of primary prevention or even for chronic stable angina revascularizing for s's and g's it's not every blockage that um, um, then putting in a, that, that, that putting in a stent is going to cause the person to live longer. What you want to have your focus on is to say, is revascularizing you going to make you live longer? Why do people see doctors? They see doctors for one of two reasons to live longer or feel better, right? Or both. 
why am I doing this? Is I, I, do you have a lesion whereby bypassing it has been shown to have a mortality reduction, right? It's not that I don't do it for people to feel better, but if I, if you're not on anything for your angina, then you question, you know, that's like saying, you know, hey, let's solve your cellulitis of your foot by cutting off your leg, right? You know what I mean? We haven't, we haven't tried antibiotics yet. You know, like let's, you know, let's wait until you get gangrene. You know what I mean? And then that will solve a foot cellulitis as well, right? So you have to kind of look at these things in, 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 in context, right? So again, and I love the fact that you brought up your heart score, lots of these different rules, emergency department assessment of chest pain score. You can Google that and stuff that uses a, a two hour troponin, uh, uh, um, uh, um, cutoff. The heart score is good because I believe it only uses a one, like a single troponin value. But all the, the flavor of all these rules is like there's a history component and then there's kind of an EKG component and then a biomarker component, right? And I think yeah. the, the flavor is, is that if all of these things are negative, you don't have any new or changing EKG findings, um, 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 your troponin is negative, uh, you know, your history is otherwise low risk, you know, you didn't say hi, I just came from the cardiologist yesterday, because they put in my stent for a lesion that I didn't need, right? Like, that's not a low risk history, right? Um, uh, um, um, it, it, usually, if you have that sort of flavor, then you can be rest assured that probably um, uh, um, um, that person can be discharged, uh, discharged safely or so. Now, it doesn't mean discharge going with the grace of God, right? Remember, you still want to do prevent a future event. And how do we do that? Lifestyle modification, making sure people's diabetes are controlled, making sure the dyslipidemia is controlled. Because remember, it's not comparing nothing like, hi, leave here now, you're not getting anything. It's comparing it with medical management, right? You want to make sure that people's risk factors are being controlled in that population. So I don't want to give the impression that, oh, if you're a low heart score, you can leave my eMERGE with no follow-up because you won't die. It doesn't tell you that you won't. It just means that, it doesn't mean that in five years, if you don't change your lifestyle and start getting certain things under control, then you have a very good chance of dying, right? Um, oh, over that period of time, that person needs follow-up to address those risk factors. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned too, which is kind of the, I found as a cop out in residency until I really understood um, the pathophysiology around it a little bit more was all of our chest pains as part of the protocol were being referred for an outpatient exercise stress test. The, the thing go. is that everything's lumped into ACS, but a STEMI presentation and the clinical symptoms and signs and the pathogenesis of it is very different from angina or instable angina or maybe the enstemies. As right. in, angina develops gradually and it develops from plaque formation. So you're right. gradually clotting off your coronary arteries. A STEMI is you threw a clot essentially into your coronary arteries. If you think they might have had a STEMI and then you do everything and they didn't, um, and you want to reassure yourself that they're not going to have a STEMI in the future. An exercise stress test is not the, is not the right test. Exactly. Because they won't have that clot. It's an exercise stress test. will look at angina exercise Ex induced angina. If you have strain on your heart as it is. Exactly. So. Exactly. And you have to think about it. If you, if you stress people who have a low pretest probability, what's going to happen? You're going to get a lot of negatives, but the positives are likely false positives. And you're going to be exposing a lot of people to potentially a whole lot of ionizing radiation and a whole lot of potential stents that may not be associated with higher mortality, may not be associated with lowering their mortality, right? You mentioned a very good point. You said that, remember, angina, it tends to develop slowly. You're getting gradual. These plaques are getting bigger. You get these plaques getting bigger over time. What are you going to form if you have time? It's collateral flow. You ever notice you get angios back and some people, when they have horrible disease, like the cardiologist spends like half a page telling you that every <laughs> artery is basically useless in this person. Then they say medical management. I'm like, WTF? Like, this is the guy that we 
must do is like medical management. Because think about it, that person probably has a lot of really good collateral flow. If you have stenosis that have been progressing over a long period of time, people are going to form collaterals around it, right? And you're going to form collateral, um, 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 you're going to get good collateralization around it. That's why it's not every time you put in a stent, it actually affects your mortality. Sure, it may help you, you might have a little less angina because I just opened up a bigger vessel. But as far as, as far as making you live or, or making you live longer, there's a lot of people where, you know, if you're doing that on a chronic, uh, um, um, for people with chronic stable angina, we just don't have the evidence to support that. Yeah. No, that's great. Thanks, Mike. You got to go eat. I got to go eat. <laughs> I'm Thanks speaking for, joining to, me today. for everybody listening because I have to be bringing you in your basement right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. The basement of Victoria. So isn't modern technology wonderful, right? It's basement pretty cool. of Victoria. It's, exactly. It's like where the, the are the still in full freaking bloom does that make sense yeah exactly and i and where the temperature i am is mine minus 17 right it's pretty nice to not have snow at the moment anyway yeah. brady had tons of fun today cool we'll do this again man definitely